What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. I'm Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And today I have uh, a guest that I think you're all going to appreciate very much. Her name is Eve Rodsky. And so welcome, Eve. I'll say that just to begin with so we can connect with one another. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron, for having me. Uh, we got to be together on one um, awesome panel and uh, you're amazing. So thank you again for having me. Well, you are too. And yes, yeah, so we did an internal series, which I think we've actually made external now. And it's a lot of great tips from Eve and some others on how to manage kids, family during the time of COVID. You'll hear some of those themes repeated now. Uh, I do want to mention that Eve is a New York Times bestselling author, not an easy uh, job. Most people can publish a book these days. Not so easy to become the New York Times bestselling author. And you've gotten some amazing accolades. We'll touch on that a little bit later. She's a keynote speaker, a lawyer by trade. We'll also talk about that. She works um, in organizational management, so you have the proper context. So I do want to start with your beginnings because you do have a little bit of a, it's well suited for what you do, but an unusual transition, I think, for a lot of people. You have a BA in economics and anthropology, and then you get your JD, that's from the University of Michigan, you get your JD from Harvard Law School. Now here you are working to change society one marriage at a time, as I think I saw (laughs) on your site. Um, Let's talk about that journey and what inspired you to go from lawyering to writing a book and helping couples and families do their job better? It's a great question, Aaron. Thank you. Um, well, I, I'll say I never set out to be a gender division of labor expert uh, in any way. And actually, prior to writing Fair Play, my life was very private. I actually didn't have any social presence. Um, and that's because My day job is I work with clients that look like the HBO show Succession. Um, And you should feel bad for me, Aaron. Um, But the beauty about working with those types of clients is I get to work on their family foundations and their uh, family businesses. And I work around the table to bring grace and humor and generosity to really complex financial and organizational decisions. So that's actually what my life was. But everything changed for me. And you can't make this stuff up, but everything changed for me uh, really one fateful day after, right after my second son, Ben, was born. And that was um, a text my husband sent me uh, when I was, and we'll talk about the scene, about why this this was the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. But um, my husband, Seth, sent me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And that text changed my life, Aaron. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it. I know a little bit about it already, but the guests will find out more. I do have to tell you, I also have a son, Ben. He's my second born. So clearly we have all sorts of connections in that regard. I do want to dig into the book, Fair Play. Um, I have not read it yet, but I actually am very much looking forward to it. My wife and I love to better ourselves. We've been married. We just celebrated our 24th anniversary. And God knows that we've gone through a lot of the stuff that I think you talk about. We've fought about the things, but... Uh, communication is clearly critical. In the book, you talk about balancing the division of household labor, which I think is, I never thought of it that way. I know we've talked about it, but I really loved the way you phrased that. Um, let's talk a little bit about what inspired you to write the book. I think you mentioned the the blueberry text was one <laughs> of the things, but, and then let's tell us a little bit about the book as well, because I know people are eager to learn. Absolutely. So um, what happened to me that day? I want you to picture the scene, Aaron. And maybe, you know, it's not a scene that you know as well, but 
Uh, you're an amazing, empathetic man, and so I love talking to men um, because fair play is really a love letter to men. And so, so many men say to me, like, I'm willing to accept the female anger in the beginning part of fair play because the solution has been so practical. And I really do, we'll talk about why everything from vacuum cleaners to um, taxi cabs have been disrupted, right? But my view was the home is probably the, the most important thing to disrupt. And so we'll talk about how fair play does that. But I want you to picture the scene of the day I got that I'm surprised you didn't get Blueberry's text because I think a lot of your, um, you know, your, your employees will recognize this, right? I had a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car. I had gifts for a newborn baby, Aaron, to return backseat of the car. I had recently opted out of the traditional workforce. And I, I say that in quotes because I've subsequently learned that there are many things that push women out of the workforce. Actually, 43% of us take a career detour after kids. And that really harms our, um, our salaries and sort of our economic potential. Um, but I had done that. I'd opted out of the traditional workforce. I started my own firm. So I had a client contract in my lap. And I will say that um, I like to work analog. So I had a pen that was sort of stabbing me between the legs. As I was trying to mark up this contract, I was racing Aaron to pick up my older son, Zach. I don't know if you have a Zach too. Um, Zach from his toddler transition program, he was three at the time. And because in America, we really value working parents. Uh, you know, those, those programs, those preschool programs last, you know, about like seven minutes. And it was in the midst of this entire chaos that Seth decided to send me, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And that day I pulled over to the side of the road, which I live in Los Angeles now, even though I'm from New York City. We don't take traffic lightly. So for me, Aaron, to have pulled over, um, something must have been really wrong. And it was a day where I really was crying. And I think the first thing I was thinking was it's so cliche that, you know, maybe my marriage is going to end over, you know, being the fulfiller of Seth's smoothie needs, right? Or, you know, I, if my marriage is going to end, it should be over. I don't know, something dramatic, like an affair in the Caribbean. But really what I was thinking that day was I used to be able to manage employee teams. Um, and now I'm so overwhelmed, I can't even manage a grocery list. So I was still blaming myself. And how had I become the default, or as I call in fair play, the she fault, even though this also applies to non-hetero cisgender relationships, um, the she fault for literally every single household and domestic task for my family, Aaron, this was not supposed to happen to me. Uh, I'm a product of a single mom. I was her partner. Starting at eight years old, I'd put my disabled brother to sleep and she would work late nights. Um, I'd helped her with eviction notices, her late utility bills. Aaron, I had vowed that I would have an equal partner in life. And also I have the privilege of being trained to communicate. Like you said, beautifully said, I'm a mediator. So I guess what was happening to me was I was curious that if this was this, this phenomenon was happening to me where I was so overwhelmed, I'd opted out of the, the workforce, I was blaming myself. Um, I was really unhappy in the, the career marriage combo I thought I was gonna have was not what I expected. I thought maybe this was happening to other women. And that's sort of what I set out to find. And that was really what I spent um, six years really on, on research for this, for this book. And um, ultimately, the, my key finding, Aaron, was that the home presents really small, which is very dangerous. So I had a man in white plains telling me he was divorcing over a glue stick. And we can unpack you know, what that means. But, um, or I'm, you know, crying over blueberries, right? So each home presents very small. Oh, we had a big fight again about the sponge in the sink. But there's a real big deeper seeding problem. And as a mediator, we say the presenting problem is not always the real problem. And the real problem is that we don't 
have any respect or rigor for our home. We don't value our home as our most important organization. We're setting the table, Aaron, when we're hangry or we're cranky. Um, we don't customize our defaults like we do in any other area. Even my Aunt Marion's Mahjong group, Aaron, has more clearly defined expectations in the home. You don't bring snack twice to her group, you're out, or that's how it was before COVID. And so what happens in those situations is it's either decision, you're dying in decision fatigue, or you're upset, or because it's a, there is gender around the home, uh, historically, it ends up falling back on women. And that really, it doesn't have to be that way. A lot of people say it's inevitable. I'll say it's, it's actually freaking inevitable. And that's what we're here to talk about, how that does not have to happen to you in your relationship, um, but also how societally, uh, when we bring equity into the home, how much it helps men be the fathers they want to be, and also helps women because we get to normalize care so that they don't get hit uh, with penalties around their, their work or opt out of the workforce. I love that empowering message. And as a guy that does take his job seriously, both as a husband, as a dad, as a you know keeper of the home, and I work a full-time job as the CMO of W2O, I think it is important to hear it as a, I'm here to, uh, the, I like the language, the love letter to men, because I think there is a lot of men, it's confusing for us. And listen, I'm the first one, white privilege. I'm a 52-year-old guy. I'm white. I have a good job, like I know my place in society. But it is hard sometimes because I think you are bombarded by so many messages telling you you're bad, you're wrong, you're the wrong skin color now. And guess what? We did a lot of bad shit, so we've earned our badges. But it is nice to hear it in a little bit more of an empathetic way that feels like it's working toward a solution. One of the things that you did talk about during our internal session, which I think is related to this, is boundary systems and communication. You know, we've touched on the communication a little bit, but that's a really important thing. And I know we talked about that being even more critical right now during a pandemic. So tell us more about what that means. That's it. That's the magic formula. Um, it's a little bit like keto, maybe easier said than done. Um, but yes, the, the, the key to the opposite of that, what we just talked about, right? The um, lack of value for our home. Um, and why, so I just want to back into why this also doesn't serve men, because I think it is important to recognize that this is, um, not a gendered solution, even though there is a gendered problem. And it's really this idea on, uh, looking at, and this is why I thank you for bringing up that I work in organizational management, because what happened to me after my blueberries day was Aaron, I was sort of at a crossroads where, where I could say to myself, look. I could resign myself to keep doing it all and lose myself in the process um, and be very gray version of my more vibrant self. So you see, I like lots of big colors. Um, and, uh, or I could sort of get my ass in gear and become my own client. And probably some people here are gonna to be too young, but there was a really funny ad in the East Coast of this man who had a toupee and he was said, I'm not just the hair club for men president, I'm the first client, if anybody remembers that. But so I wanted to be my own client and say, what if I took some of the organizational management that I've been trained in and the positive organizational psychology um, and the job crafting work at the University of Michigan that I love for my alma mater and brought it to the home. And so one of the things I started to look at was the state phases of organizational management and where men were stepping in. So what I found was that you can really understand the systems fail 
This is not a blaming men or women. This is a systems failure. When you think about the steps of organizational management. And so you just have to think about mustard, Aaron, right? You know, how did that mustard got into your refrigerator? Well, when I started to break it down into, oh, someone had to know your second son, Ben, likes French's yellow mustard with his protein. And he's been eating it, only eating his protein for seven years uh, with that yellow mustard, right? So I started to say, okay, that's our conception phase when you sort of think about project management. And then there's, um, someone has to monitor that mustard for when it's running low and get input from the other team, even if they're the lead, to make sure there's buy-in and what are the groceries that are coming in, right? That's sort of the planning phase. And then someone has to actually go to their butt to the, you know, get their butt to the store to go, and now it's more complicated in gloves and masks, right? But get their butt to the store to go purchase that uh, French's yellow mustard. And so what I was finding, especially in the hetero cisgender relationships, Aaron, was that that's where men were stepping in, um, for better or for worse. And then you guys are bringing home spicy Dijon every freaking time, Aaron, right? And I, I asked you for for French's yellow, right? And and don't you sit at the table with me, Aaron? Like, haven't you been watching Ben for seven years? And all of a sudden, we're not talking about condiments anymore. We're talking about accountability and trust. And so what I realized was that the number one thing men told me they hated about home life was nagging or the idea that they couldn't get anything right even if they tried to step up, which made me feel so sad for men. Like, who wants to escape to a place, like a, a, your home, if you right. really, you're walking and you don't know your role, right? How shitty does it feel when you walk into, your, uh, into a meeting that someone pulls you into and you don't know why you're there, right? That lack of context. And then for women, it was this idea that they couldn't shut their minds off. So this idea of when you, when you move to an ownership mindset, where you say to your partner, I empower you as a partner to hold the full conception, planning, and execution, then the accountability and trust comes back. There's a very different mindset of how you approach the home. And so um, this idea that, oh, well, my husband couldn't grocery shop, like how condescending, right? You're the CMO of, of an amazing, huge company. Like you have amazing executive function. But it's just that this idea that I call it not nagging, but I call it the rat F. I won't use that word, but men are, are unfortunately being on the recipient end of the random assignments of tasks all day long. And when your home is infested with rats, who wants to live there? So that ownership mindset is really how you restructure. And the reason why I say this is to say that that's the systems part, but you're not going to get there um, without boundaries um, and communication. And I think those are the other two pieces we can touch on too. Well, I like that. And I like the empowering piece because I do feel like that is an issue. Or if you don't feel like you know your role outside of I'm the breadwinner, then it is complicated, right? And so- yeah understanding that having conversations and you know to the nagging part i think it is it's hard because one of the things my wife and i have realized is is that there are certain things we both do that bother the other one and that's just inevitable in life so you can either fix it or you can let it keep persisting which we say is the definition of insanity and yes yes that's not always something that it's not always something you want to fix but it's like look if this is the thing like me leaving a dish in the sink overnight is the thing that drives you crazy I can fix that. That is not a difficult thing to fix. Yeah. And one amazing man, um, big job, he's playing fair play. He said, you know, this is sort of the price of admission, right? You know, to, um, to, my, to having a really thriving home life. And so that's really the core, the core of, of fair play. But so let's talk about boundaries first, because we'll, we'll, we, and then how you get there. How do you get to a place where you can have these types of conversations 
where you are customizing your defaults in advance, where Aaron, I'm empowering you to not buy, buy me the glue stick, but actually take over the full Albert Einstein um, biography project and trust you that you're going to help our son deliver it in a beautiful fashion, right? Those are, that's where we want couples to be because that empowerment in the home is, is really liberating for both, for both parties. Again, this, unfortunately, some of this heteronormative stuff, again, applies to same-sex couples. So these systems failures are happening in lots of couples. And like I said, not just the traditional ones. But the first piece is this, um, the mental health and sanity that you and your partner both need during this time. And that's the idea of being permission to be unavailable. And this really happens to people after kids. We've now been conditioned to have to work harder than we've ever had to work. We're being conditioned that we have to spend more time with our, we're spending more time with our kids as breadwinners. We're still spending more time with our kids than people who did not work in the 70s, men and women. Um, the intensive parenting of ha and this idea that their togetherness is the, is the key to happiness. I'll say that the boundaries is the permission to be unavailable from your spouse, from your kids, from your workplace, and how you can use your voice to do that. But it starts with, you can't say I'm gonna have a, go take a walk around the block, Aaron, without actually believing you have a permission, permission to be unavailable. And so I know women do have a harder time with this. Um, and it's also societally how we view women's time. I talk about that, we view women's time as infinite. And often we protect men's time as finite and men are better at protecting their boundaries. But I still will say that um, a lot of men and women tell me that they have a hard time saying no, whether it's to their boss or to their partner. And that requires um, recognizing that what I call unicorn space, active, nutritious leisure time uh, to, to spend it on something that makes you you is very important to our mental health and also our relationship. Um, so the permission to be unavailable is the boundary I'm talking about, not taking a walk around the block. And if you don't believe you have a permission to be unavailable, or you're the person in your household who you feel is the holding the conception and planning for most of those daily grind tasks like dishes and homework and homeschooling and um, garbage and dogs. And, you know, if, if you feel like that, you feel that overwhelm, then we have to reset. But it takes that idea of a boundary recognizing you deserve that boundary first before you can enter the system. It's, you know, it's so simple, but it's maybe one of the most profound things that people can do for themselves. And it's one of those things I had a very hard time with. And my wife and I are still talking about it because she has that same feeling of like, I, I want to go and get a pedicure. I want to go and visit my sister, but I feel guilty. And I'm like, why should you feel guilty? You do an amazing amount around the house. You support our children and me beautifully. Like, go and do that. And I know not every husband or partner is that way, but it is critical to have that time but for yourself. But it has to be that way, Aaron. That's my I point. Agree. That's why I love talking to you. If, if it's not going to be that way, then um, we're not going to have thriving families. And so you're, you're the beauty of understanding that there, there is a happiness trio. And, and actually you just brought up actually many versions of the happiness trio. So I talked about unicorn space, which is an active pursuit like baking a pie or crocheting your Harry Potter dolls as this one woman keeps sending me amazing dolls because she knows I love Harry Potter. Um, but this, but also self-care and, and adult friendships and that those connections, whether it's with your sister, your best friend. Um, a lot of men say to me that they do not feel like they have the permission to engage in their happiness trio. So maybe they'll get one round of golfing or something, um, but it's with a client 
or you know, they don't really get to prioritize their friendships or even self-care. You know, so many men say to me, well, I don't self-care. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't use a moisturizer. I'm like, no, I'm not talking about commodified wellness, but do you get to take a walk with your dog every day and walk on the beach, write in your journal. And so men deserve that time too. You're more than just your role as well. Yeah. I mean, and I think I had mentioned to you that I do take a walk every day with my dogs and it's, I get up early to do it and I've been doing it in the dark now, but that hour or two hours, like I try to do two hours on the weekend every morning, it is the best time. I try not to have my phone, like it's in my pocket, but I'm not looking at anything and just being sort of alone in the world. It's, it's beautiful. And I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's mine. I do. And I'm sure you get your creativity, right? You're in a creative job. So I'm assuming there's a lot of, you know, it's like, that's like your shower time, but in a better way, right? I'm sure that you've had a lot of creative ideas during that time. I do. And I only take three minute showers. So I don't actually have the time <laughs> to be creative there because right, I take right. my long walks. I do want to ask you about this list of tasks because you brought up this amazing list. And I think people will chuckle and probably commiserate with this. They're the tasks that are causing couples the biggest problems. I think you called it their dirty dozen. Can you tell yes. us about the dirty dozen? So fair play is a metaphor. It's an invitation. And I, I say this to you because you're, um, you work in San Francisco so we can serve, or, you know, the, the Bay Area and um, for a company that will, I think, appreciate this. I, one of my very close friends is a conversation designer. So we talk a lot about, uh, what it looks like to communicate and mediate. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, so much of his, his work is around invitations, right? If I'm going to bust into your office, Aaron, and say like, I see the dish in the sink, right? I, it doesn't really inviting you to have a conversation about housework, right? And so that's really what Fair Play is about. It's a metaphor. You can actually play. It's an, a card game. Um, it's, it's, it's meant to be a, an invitation that's more fun. One awesome man said to me, he, he sent me a picture of this in Vegas before COVID, obviously. He's like, these are not the cards I thought I'd be playing in, in Vegas. It's <laughs> like, well, it's probably better than losing your money. Safer, right? You won't um, lose much money. Exactly. So of the 100 cards, which first came from uh, a spreadsheet I'd started called the Should I Do Spreadsheet, which is now much more uh, empowering and efficient than a list because lists alone don't work. That's what I learned. But systems do. Um, so I asked couples in COVID of these hundred cards and I gave them uh, a PDF of them. I asked them to circle or to write an email back to me. What are the top ones that are causing the most fights in your home right now? So these are the COVID dirty, dirty dozen. Uh, and they, they rose to the top, Aaron, over all the other tasks. Um, and I was surprised pets weren't in there because you love your pets. So that's good. Um, these were the ones, laundry, groceries, meals, home supplies, like who's getting the masks and hand sanitizer, tidying up, those are the plates in the sink, cleaning, dishes, those are also the plates in the sink, garbage, and if you have kids, um, what rose to the top was discipline and screen time, making decisions around homework and supervising homeschool, watching of your children, whether they're small or teenagers, like whether they're escaping quarantine or not, and then social interactions for kids. I was surprised that that was one of the top 12, but so many parents especially said to me that they're feeling really, really stressed about whether their child is getting enough socialization. And that's where a lot of their guilt is. So that's because the guilt is there around screen time and socialization that rose to the top for them, even over, you know, tasks like pets or dry cleaning or something like that. Well, 
I was just gonna say that's a hard one, right? It's a hard one because we don't know what to do. Like there's no right answer in terms of screen time and socialization. And it's such a balancing act. But you sort of feel like you're, you know, do I walk on the glass or do I, you know, walk on the fire? One way or the other, something bad might happen, but it's just trying to find out like, and I think that's back to your, one of your points is it's not being so hard on yourself. It's letting yourself accept the fact that we're in this new normal and we, no one has written the playbook for how this works, right? No, and my friend, he called it Earth 2.0, and I've been using that because I think it's so good. Um, nobody knows the playbook for Earth, Earth 2.0. Um, we're going to look back in the history books, and they're like, wow, like, how did you live through that, right? So I think the grace, some of it is grace to say that we've never, um, since the Industrial Revolution, had our religious institutions, our home, our school, um, and our Work. workplace. Right. Under under one roof. And so understanding that there, we have to give ourselves some grace. And part of that is letting go of guilt, especially for women where that is a societal, it is one of our societal um, ways. Guilt and shame has been a societal way that, you know, we have been able to al- keep women in, in d- domestic work. And so what I will say about guilt and shame, because men feel it too, maybe not in my surveys to the same extent, but the one thing that Dr. my really good friend, Dr. Cheryl Ziegler says, she wrote a book called Mommy Burnout, I love, is she, and she wrote a Harvard Business Review article on, on mom guilt. But this applies to anybody. She says, a beautiful, I like to just burn guilt and shame, and we can talk about the um, origami sage ritual I did to sage guilt and shame out of my life before I went on the guilt, uh, my book tour. That's very Los Angeles. But what I think that Cheryl says that's so beautiful is reframe guilt to say why you made the decision you made. So instead of saying, I'm guilty because I'm working late, you reframe it to say, I made this decision because I love my work and it fulfills me and my identity. And if your kids know why you made your decision, then there's a lot less guilt. If they're saying, oh, I feel guilty, I'm leaving you. Then they're like, well, you don't even care about the thing you're doing because you feel guilty about it. Instead, reframe it to say, I made the decision to visit my sister because that relationship is the most, one of the most important relationships in my life. And I want to foster between you kids, the same type of bond with your, with your sibling. You use the because that I made the decision because I do, I've done that a lot because I've listened to her and reframing guilt. And it's been really, really helpful. Well, I like that because we try to provide a lot of context in our family with our kids I do it with my wife. I try to do it at work. And I feel like it is that context. It's this is why I'm doing this. Doesn't always please people, but it gives them that understanding. And at least to your point, it's not a, hey, I'm choosing this versus you. And you can guess why it is that I'm doing it, right? And maybe you see that I'm miserable doing this. Yes. And I think it's so important you say that, Aaron, because I think there's a lot of people who are misunderstanding the word why. <laughs> and I'll explain what I mean. So we know Simon Neck, you know, he had this beautiful start with your why talk and I love his book. And then I think there was like some sort of backlash by saying, well, the word why doesn't work in the workplace. And I completely disagree with that. Um, what they're saying is, why did you do this doesn't work because we're not talking about your why that way. We're talking when we mean why someone like Simon Sinek or I talk about your why and fair play, how important it is to talk about the why around garbage or why is it that your wife um, why is it that bothers her that there's a dish in the sink, right? For me, it would be because I grew up in a single mom household. I had cockroaches and water bugs scattering everywhere. And I, it brings me back to that sad place. But Aaron, if you knew that about me, 
Um, there's going to be more of an understanding for maybe coming up with a minimum standard of care, a compromise between the two of us for what would work for us both, right? It doesn't mean you have to always do what I say because of my why, but at least you have a better understanding instead of the what, like get that dish out of the sink. The context is key. And that's what a why does. I'm not saying, why did you leave that dish in the sink? That's not the why I mean. I mean the context around why things matter to you. And so that's really, if that's what your listeners take away today, I will say that the way you can get to your why, and this ends on our, our boundary systems and communication, we're now communication, the really the best way to get to your why is two things. One is to recognize that we all have communication vulnerabilities. And when we give feedback, those vulnerabilities typically come out when you're giving feedback in the moment. And so what I like to say is that as a mediator, feedback in the moment is toxic. And again, there's been a lot of confusion when I talk to corporations because they say, well, I'm supposed to give immediate time feedback. And I say, well, not when you're the person you're giving that feedback to can't listen to you. So what I like to say is you invest in a check-in, whether you're a manager, whether it's your partner, that check-in time when emotion is low and cognition is high is really an investment in your relationship. It's an investment in your workplace. And those more, and that doesn't mean spilling out. You're a container for your employees. You're a container for your partner. If you're here to talk about mustard, let's talk about mustard. We don't need to spend an hour on accountability and trust. But you start to have these more frequent communication check-ins. And then what you start to see is you get much more comfortable having hard, difficult conversations. And you start those check-ins by your why. So, you know, how are you today? Or I had a hard time with the sponge in the sink and here's why, because I feel like, you know, what you, you forget about me, Aaron, you know, is that I, you know, grew up this way. And so that's really stressing me out, right? You, you, you bring some context back to your conversation. So one, no feedback at the moment. Two, set a check-in. Three, start with your why. Not why did you do this, but the context for why it matters to you. Or the story you're telling yourself about somebody else. What is my story of your why? So Aaron, the story I'm telling myself is that you leave that dish in the sink because you think my time's not valuable, you don't care about me, and you think I should clean up after you, just like your mom does. And then you could say, well, actually, that's not the story that I want you to tell yourself about me, right? Those are deeper conversations that take practice. But if we can treat our communication as a practice as opposed to a means to an end, then really things start, you know, they can change really quickly. Well, it's great advice. And um, I, I love thinking about this and I will take some of those away to continue to work on my relationship. I have a fun sort of comment and I'd love to get your reaction to, and that is that you wrote this book last fall, this actress that probably a lot of people have heard of named Reese Witherspoon, one of my favorites, chose your book as one of her book club picks. So tell us what finding out about that was like. That must have been a little bit of a cloud nine moment for you. Yeah, it was real. that whole... Yeah, it's actually the anniversary of finding out um, today. Wow. So I'm talking to you on the book on October 1st, 2019 is when I found out. So in a way that, what a beautiful question that you get to ask me. Um, awesome. It was, it, you know, the publisher gives you these, you know, I, you're gonna, you know, obviously, you know, you're, there's this wall up between the editorial side, so you don't really know. And it was a really beautiful day. It was, um, I remember getting that phone call that morning and everything sort of came out that day. It was really, really um, a dream come true because it feels so, it's so far from crying over on the side of the road over blueberries through an eight year sort of curiosity um, to completion journey. Um, and that completion 
it felt really good because I felt to myself, you know what, the system is working for Seth and me. My kids are living in the system. And so even if it helps one other couple, you know, it was worth it. And I will say one funny thing though, is that Reese's book club, um, I guess a lot of October is spooky fiction. And so I did get it from some <laughs> women, like we really wanted a spooky fiction pick. And I would say, you know what? Not having a good relationship is way more spooky than any nonfiction book you can read. And then I would give some recommendations of, you know, my gothic fiction writers that I loved. So it was sort of, it was a really, it was a really beautiful day and I get to spend my anniversary with you. That's awesome. And I'm honored to, to be doing that. It is funny because I'm sure there were some people that got, you know, three quarters of the way through the book and they're like, where's the spooky fiction? They were, <laughs> they were really, they said that. It reminds me, and then I want to get to two fun questions and we'll wrap up. But um, I wrote a dummies book a million years ago on location-based marketing. And my grandmother, God love her, she's no longer with us, was, she knew I was writing a book. She didn't really know what the topic was. And she kept pushing me, when is it going to be done? When is it going to be out? And I'm thinking to myself, like, what does my great, my grandmother, who was, you know, in her 80s, care about location-based marketing? So got the book, signed it, sent it to her. And she was very appreciative of it. But she was like, oh, I thought this was going to be more like a novel. And so <laughs> it was just one of those, sorry, Graham, I, I didn't mean to disappoint you with the business book. But yeah, next time exactly. I'll write a novel. Yeah, yeah nonfiction is, is not for everybody, you know. But um but for the people it's for, uh, I'm sure they really appreciated what you wrote. They, well, they did. I hope they did anyway. Yeah. Uh, so final fun questions or more fun questions, a little lighter. One that I've started asking everyone in the COVID era, which is if you had one wish and it could be anything, what would it be and why? It's going to go a little, a little deep here, but I think my wish is that we have this fork in the road now where we're seeing that this time is called this she session. Um, and you know, there's been 350 articles that I track Aaron saying coronavirus is a disaster for feminism. So my big wish is that, um, we can really uh, embrace and start valuing care so that we believe as a society that an hour holding our child's hand in the pediatrician's office is just as valuable as an hour in the boardroom. And that's my wish for society, that we can believe that those things are equally valuable. Because then I think that we'll normalize doing it. We won't have to sneak out. Um, and we can be more whole people, whole selves that we bring to work. Well, that's a great answer. And how powerful. That's such a, a good image, right, in terms of simplifying it down. So, and good for you for wishing societal <laughs> good versus, you know, a great <laughs> vacation to Paris or Aruba. Um, not that I, you know, begrudge anyone. Yeah, those are good too. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of islands, I do also like to ask this question of as many people as I can. I just love to find out sort of, it, it gives me a little bit into their thought process, but you could pick one album, you know, any album you're stuck on a proverbial deserted Island, which one would you take with you and why? Can I get, can I say two? I will let you do two because today All is right. a special anniversary. Of Thank things. you for my anniversary. Um, I'll say Nas Illmatic because it's the story of New York City um, and Queens and it reminds me a lot of what it was like to grow up uh, in the Lower East Side as sort of hip hop uh, was emerging. And so it's one of my favorite albums of all time. I listen to it and I'm scared um, of doing something hard. And then I'll have to say Under the Table and Dreaming by Dave Matthews because um, that reminds me again of another nostalgic time of going to the University of Michigan. And um, it's, I think nostalgia is a really good emotion to have right now in a place where we're stuck. We can sort of travel back to some of our favorite memories. 
since we aren't, you know, making as many uh, new travel memories as, as we'd like. Well, I'm glad I gave you two. Those are great choices. <laughs> I didn't see the NAS one coming, but I love the, the rationale there. And the Dave Matthews one, I saw one of my fondest moments of all time was watching Dave Matthews at Fenway Park. It was a beautiful summer evening with my wife and some good friends. And uh, those are both excellent choices. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What's No podcast show. And today we've had Eve Rodsky, who is New York Times bestselling author, keynote speaker. And as we mentioned, a lawyer by trade who works in organizational management and genuine good person. I just, you know, it's been such a pleasure having this conversation. Thank you, Aaron. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.